I'm John Mattis, and this is Puck Pursuit. Hey folks, what's going on? I hope you and yours are doing well, all things considered. It sure feels like this pandemic will never end. Please hang in there. At least 2020 is coming to a close. There is a silver lining out there. Okay, today's guest is Bob McKenzie, the legendary broadcaster and writer. Bob is easily the most plugged in and respected member of the hockey media fraternity. His 40-year career started in Sault Ste. Marie at the Sioux Star, and it led him to Toronto, to the Hockey News and the Toronto Star, before he moved over to broadcasting with TSN full-time in the year 2000. Bob and I chat about his semi-retirement life, the insider business, the ancient philosophy of stoicism. I realize that seems random, but you'll find out why we, we chat about that. The 2021 World Juniors, and his latest book, Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2, which was co-written with Jim Lang and is out now. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Bob McKenzie. So Bob, let's start with something that's probably on the mind of everybody listening. What exactly does semi-retirement look like for Bob McKenzie, aka Bobby Margarita? Like there's two sides to you. So what's it look like? This The middle ground, what's that look like? Well, yeah, a lot of people ask me that thing about you know, how do you be semi-retired? And I, and I guess the, the short answer is I'm just out of the day-to-day grind. I mean, it's not like I have no work to do because I do. I'm, I'm preparing to do the World Junior Championships and that's going to be, you know, that's like a month's work. So, <laughs> I mean, by the time it's all said and done, um, and, and this year it's even more complicated because all fingers crossed, um, you know, it's going to be in the bubble in Edmonton but there's a big protocol to get ready for that in terms of, you know, a seven day period where you've got to have three negative tests. Then you go into the bubble for a four day quarantine in a hotel room in Edmonton, three or four more negative tests. And then starting December 25th, you're basically there every day doing games right through to the end of the tournament on January 5th or 6th or whatever it is. So so for the better part of December and the early part of January, I'm not retired at all. I'm working full time on the World Juniors. We've got draft rankings to do for the 2021 draft. So I'm busy with all that stuff. But if the NHL were on right now, I wouldn't be obliged to watch games every night, do a million radio hits the next day. And that's the part I'm out of the day-to-day grind. So I'm not worried about breaking news or trying to stay on top of everything. And it's a little weird because there's no games to even watch right now. So um, it is bizarre, but uh, it just allows me a lot more time to relax, do the things I want to do. Took up yeah. golf this summer. Love it. So how's the golf game? I'm a, a thousand times better than I was, and I'm still terrible. So which is to suggest <laughs> that on good courses like Wooden Sticks or Coppinwood or Rocky Crest, on a good day, I'll shoot 100 to 105, but I can keep score now. And at the beginning of the summer, I couldn't even keep score because it would have been 200 if I was being honest. So you, you laid out pretty well there what, what life's looking like for you and how you are still pretty busy, but I guess less busy in the moment, if that makes sense. You're chasing less news. Uh, you know, you're on air much less frequently. 
is there one thing that you miss? Like, do you miss the, the chase of news or, or following, you know, scoops or having yeah. even maybe even just having an insightful convo with a, a GM? And now, I mean, you could still have that conversation, but it's probably less, uh, less likely. Yeah, maybe a little bit here and there. I mean, I came back. I hadn't been doing anything, much of anything there for a while. And then I came back to help with Darren Dreger, Pierre Lebrun, Frank Sarvalli, and all my TSN pals. I came back for a free agent day. And, um, you know, there was the thrill of the chase on a few things, but there was also the frustration of not getting some things and <laughs> it made me realize, I'm not sure I miss this that much. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, what, you know what I miss is, and, and, and this is quite a side, I guess, from is because of the pandemic, I just missed going into the studio and being with the guys, sitting down beside Duffy, sitting down beside Dregs or Pierre or Odog or Frank, you know, just that human contact. But I think we all miss that. That's nothing to do with retirement. That's, that's more, we all miss normal life. And, and you know, the, the best part of the job was probably just the fun interactions. And, and listen, I'm not going to lie it was my retirement year and I sort of envisioned this riding off into the sunset after doing my final Stanley cup final and going to the, going to Vegas for the uh, NHL awards and going to the draft in Montreal. And it was all going to be so much fun and I was going to cherish every bit of it. And then, you know, none of it happened. And, but everybody's like that. Everybody's got to deal with it. So you just kind of move on. But um, what I don't miss honestly is, is there are times now where, so when I go on Sundays and visit my son, Mike, and, and uh, his wife, Andy, and my two grandkids, um, I can just take my phone and leave it in the car. I don't need to even worry about it. And, and that because now I'm in the, more in the moment. So I've got more opportunities to be in the moment with my family or friends or whatever, where I'm not constantly looking at my phone, constantly thinking I'm missing out on something. Surely somebody's doing a trade and I don't know what's going on. Because now I don't need to know. So the insider gig is interesting. And I, if I'm not mistaken, you were the first one to be slapped with that label on the hockey side of things. What, what percentage of information do you think you actually know as an insider? Because there's 31 teams. There's stuff that's happening at the league level. Like when you were, let's say, quote unquote, in your prime and, and knew as much as you could know, could you put a percentage on like how much you actually knew how inside it, you actually were? It would be really low. I mean, there's so many things that are going on in the game and, and we're none the wiser for it. Um, but the harder you work and the more people you talk to and, and the, the, the great part about being an insider at TSN was having Darren Dreger and Pierre Lebrun and Frank Saravalli to lean on um, because, you know, it was, a, it was always a collaboration. It was never competing against each other. It was never just doing your own thing. You know, the amount of time over the course of the day we would spend on group chats or talking to each other on the phone. Um, so many of the stories that any of us, myself, Pierre, Greg, uh, Frank, would, we'd be the first to tell you that the, the, initial, the initial tip that led to the story came from somebody else. And then a second person furthered that story just with, with somebody else with their information and somebody else took it another step with their information. And if you happen to be the lucky guy that was number four in the chain and you had the <laughs> last piece of the puzzle that, you know, and, and basically we were all the same and we were just like, Hey, if anybody gets anything, we got it nailed dead to, dead to rights. 
you know, don't go back to the first guy worrying about giving him credit. Just let's get it out there. And so that was a, that was a fun way to do business. But having said all that, as, as good as we all are, as good as all the people who do this are, whether it's Elliot or anybody else, um, there's so much going on in the game that we don't actually know. But, I mean, if you work really, really, really hard and you collaborate with your teammates, you should know, you know, 10 to 100 times more than, than maybe somebody who's more specialized on just focusing on one team. Sure. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, I'm curious, do you tend to look at your career in two halves before Twitter and after Twitter? Because it's such a game changer, especially in the news department. Yeah, I guess I, if I was going to break out the, the, the two parts, the first part I would say was print and then broadcast. Okay. Because initially print was really just print, you know, so the Sioux Star and Sioux St. Marie um, and then at the Hockey News. Um, but over the course in the 80s at the Hockey News, it started to morph into more and you know, so around 86, 87, that's when I started to cross over and do a little bit of broadcast. And, you know, by, and by 87, 88, I guess, I probably got slapped with the insider label from TSN. Okay. And this is a bit of a loaded question, but I think your answer could be instructive to people listening. And, you know, some people listening might be striving to be as successful as, as you are in your field in their own why and how do you think you reached you know such great heights as a as an insider and just in the media industry in general like can you pinpoint any sort of advice that can maybe be spread across different industries no you know what i don't i wish i had some magic formula but you just kind of you just kind of work away at it like when i when i covered junior hockey in sioux st marie covered the sioux greyhounds um you know, I would look at the established guys. So John Herbert covered the London Knights for the London Free Press. And John Herbert was, in my mind, he was the best junior hockey reporter in the country. And he had, you know, he got all sorts of trades and he got all sorts of information about, you know, junior players going to the NHL and this and that. And um, I think he also might have been the guy that gave Gretzky the nickname, the great Gretzky, but that's another story. Interesting. Um, and, and Herbie was, you know, like he would get the NHL central scouting list and publish them. And so when I was up in the Sioux, I'd be like, I want to be like Herbie. I want to, I want to get that first. So then I started, I wanted to get the NHL central scouting list and I made it my mission in life that I was going to do that. So it was just sort of grim determination and desire to want to be the guy that, everybody looks to for information. And so that's kind of where it started. And then, and then after that, I'm not sure. It, it, I never, cause I never set out to be on TV. I never set out to be in broadcast. I never set out to be an insider. I only ever wanted to be a hockey writer. I only ever wanted to be a beat reporter that would cover an NHL team and go to the games and go to the practices and travel and be there. And that was it. And, um, and the funny thing is I never actually ever truly did that. Um, except when I was at the Sioux star covering the Sioux Greyhounds, that's when I was a true hockey writer. Huh. And then I, I wanted to get a job at the sun or the star or the globe covering the Leafs, but I couldn't get, couldn't break through. And I ended up working at the hockey news and now I became the editor in chief, but it was as much administrative and then behind the scenes, laying out pages, copy editing, doing all those things, managing a staff, uh, multiple publications 
And so while I did write a lot about hockey, I technically, in my mind, I was more an editor than I was a writer. And I was a hockey writer of sorts, but I never actually got to be that beat reporter. And even when I went to the Toronto Star in uh, the 90s and left the hockey news, I got to be a hockey columnist, but I still... Um, <laughs> still missed the mark. <laughs> still, still wasn't covering, you know, a beat reporter. So, but it was, as I say, I'm, I'm not sure I answered your question other than, other than I just kept on wanting to do more and the... the 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 universe morphed a little bit in terms of from print to broadcast and then that morphed from from website to social media and the and the multi-platforms you know radio television internet uh, print um, the spoken word the you know then podcasts and social media and twitter and instagram and all these things so yeah in, in answer to your earlier question it absolutely um, pre-social media, post-social media was another huge divide. So I'm going to get to the World Juniors in your book in, in a minute here, but one last life slash career question for you. I noticed in your farewell that you sent out on Twitter, and farewell might be a strong word, but the message saying, hey, you know, I'm going to be kind of taking a step back into semi-retirement. I noticed in that, that you signed off with Memento Mori which roughly translates to remember you are mortal. It's kind of a uh, stoic philosophy right. phrase. Uh, and I've read come a, a couple of Ryan Holiday's books, uh, Obstacle is the Way, Stillness is the Key, those types of books. I'm curious, like, has that interest of yours changed the way that you, you look at the world and the way that you, you view life and, may, and maybe your career as well? Can, can you explain? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly when I read The Obstacle is the Way, but um, it was uh, it was it was game changing, life changing a little bit for me. Um, and I'm, I'm I, I try to practice Stoic philosophy, although as the Stoics would say, don't talk about your philosophy, you know, live it. Um, and here I am talking about <laughs> it. And and quite frankly, if I was truthful, I'm not very good at it. But selectively, I am. But um, when I read The Obstacle is the Way, it just, everything about it seemed to, to speak to me. And, and, and in a manner of speaking, in some aspects of my career, I felt like I was doing that long before I realized hmm. what Stoic philosophy was. Um, you know, in terms of try not to be emotional, try to be rational. You know, don't overreact to anything. Think this through, you know, and... and and when I was doing live television, whether it was on deadline day or free agent frenzy or whatever, at a game and things were happening quickly, I would always try to slow things down in my mind and say, you know, anybody could have an opinion on this, but what it needs to be informed. What's my information here? What am I, I'm trying to distill a bunch of information down. What's the most important thing here? And for God's sake, don't say something stupid, irrational, emotional that afterwards you would say, well, why did I say that? I had no basis. I hadn't done the homework on that. It was just a goofy off the cuff remark. And, and so I, I'd always kind of believed in doing that anyways. But then when I read The Obstacle is the Way and saw Stoic Philosophy, it was more along the lines of um, you should try to live your life that way too. A lot of it's you know, a mentality, right? It's like an, like, I think Tim Ferriss, the self-help guy, entrepreneur, 
frames it as stoic philosophy can be an operating system. Like we think of our phones, they have operating systems. Yeah. Stoic philosophy can be an operating system for your life. That's kind of a cool way to look at it where, yeah, it is. you know, creates this kind of foundation. It doesn't, it doesn't mean, you know, you're praying to a God or something, but it's kind of a, a way to ground yourself and, and kind of look at the world in more of a objective way. Yeah. For me, it's just like, just try to be, I think, what do they say? Ruthlessly pragmatic. And, that's kind of the way. And listen, you know, I'm like anybody else. I can be really emotional at times. And and when I was younger, I was the type A personality. I was wound. And when I was running, when I was editor in chief of the hockey news, you know, I'd blow up and temper and all that kind of stuff. But over the course of time, I got sort of got out, tried to get outside myself and and kind of see things in a more detached, rational fashion versus irrational. Some of that might be just uh, getting a little older, right? <laughs> getting some, some better perspective. I think there, there's certainly an element to that. And I think, too, as you get older, you try to, you know, I, when you're younger, I think there's, and again, everybody's wired differently. But when initially when you're trying to forge your way and to be the best you can be, you know, maybe there's an element of selfishness in your life where you put everything, you make a lot of sacrifices and push a lot of things away to try and do your job to the best of your ability. Um, and, and, and then I think you realize as you get older that you don't need to be as selfish or self-centered in order to be successful and that you can be more empathetic and you can be more worldly and you can be more in the moment with other people and what have you as, as you go along, at least you try to anyways. Yeah. Well said. So I wanted to ask you briefly about the 2021 World Juniors. First of all, from your perspective, how do you see this playing out in Edmonton with a bubble, no fans, um, players arriving December 13th? Uh, what, what, what's your take? I guess we're about a month out from that. Yeah, what it, my, my take on that is the same as it was for the NHL bubble in the few weeks leading up to when the players were reporting to the bubble. And that is this is the window this next month here this is where it all it all either comes together or it falls apart and and listen i we we i think we all desperately want the world juniors to be on yes. and it's certainly on the schedule and hockey canada and the IIHF have every intention of making it happen but as we've known since last march a lot of things are out of our control now and so you just kind of hold your breath and say, hope, hope this goes the way that it's supposed to go. Because, you know, the numbers are rising all across Canada um, and in Alberta as well. Um, if you've been following the under 18s and under 20 European teams, they've been playing games and tournaments and preparations and camps and things like that. And some of them had to be canceled here and there because some some outbreaks on certain teams and some of the players getting COVID and, and what have you. So I felt the same way that if I thought if the NHL can get to everybody reporting to Toronto and Edmonton for the bubble, once they're there, they're going to be fine. Because I knew that they were going to take great lengths to keep people secure, that the amount of testing they were going to do, the precautions, the safety and all those things. And I believe the same thing. I don't think Hockey Canada and the IIHF have as much money as the National Hockey League did to put that whole thing on the way they did it. 
but I think they've got a framework that looks like it's going to make sense and be safe. But in those intervening weeks between now and then, we got to make sure that, that the politicians and health authorities in Alberta and Canada don't get too skittish about where the numbers are going. And with players and teams coming from all over the world, especially from some European countries where the, it surged, the COVID outbreak is surging again there. So it's just a matter of trying to keep things, some semblance of, you know, passability, if you want to call it that, between now and when December 13th or 14th arrives, and then cross your fingers and say, get these kids and get the TSN group and get the uh, officials and everybody, get them into the bubble, get them tested, and, and then let's, let's get after it. Because I don't know about you, but everybody so wants to have some level of return to normalcy. Yeah. Um, and, and, and right now it's not normal. There's no NHL games on. It's, it's November. There's, there's no games being played. We don't even know when there's going to be games played. Probably in January, but what day in January? When? When are the camps going to open? We don't know. But what we do know is if they can get those kids to that bubble and they can get it started, then starting December 25th to January 6th, 5th or 6th, there's going to be three World Junior Games a day and every one of them is going to be on TSN and I'm going to be there for it. And what's more normal than everybody at home for Christmas and New Year's getting to watch the world juniors on TSN would be fantastic. So fingers crossed. Who are your gold medal contenders this far out based on projected rosters? Who jumps off the page? Yeah. You know, I haven't, I haven't started doing a ton of drilling down on a ton of homework yet on that, but I mean, it's the same every year. I mean, you could say, you could say, let, let's be honest, Canada and the United States are probably at a bit of a disadvantage not yeah. having played as many games as the Russian kids, the Swedes, the Finns. Um, so, but I mean, you, every, every world juniors, I get asked that question and every world juniors, I go, well, Canada, United States, Russia, Sweden, Finland. And I mean, and you gotta be careful, all those countries, the traditional powers have to be careful that a team like the Czechs um, or the Germans or the Slovaks or the Austrians or, or whomever, um, don't derail you along the way. And there's always a surprise team that sometimes ends up being a threat to win a medal in that group. But at the end of the day, let's not kid anybody here. You know, the, the, the Swedes will be very good. And, and it could be a, a, a unique one too, where, you know, it's like the lockout years, except without the lockout, we, we may, well, you know, Canada's already, all things being equal, Kirby Doc's going to be playing for Canada. Um, and he otherwise wouldn't be there if the NHL were going on. So it changes the dynamic a little when everybody gets access to their best players or most of them, because we still don't know what teams are going to do. Like what's Jersey going to do with Jack Hughes? Are they going to turn him loose at the world juniors? Or are they just going to say, yeah, we'll know more. I think when we know what the dates are for the NHL. So I'll rephrase that then. Which players are you excited to see? There's a couple of 2021 draft prospects. That's always a highlight because they're on the big stage. There's guys like Quentin Byfield who are going to get a lot more uh, ice time. There's, you know, prospects throughout the tournament that, that could really um, get your blood flowing. What about for you? Yeah, for sure. You know, I'll be curious to see, you know, the, the Russian team, for example, Vasily Podkolzin is going to be one in his third world junior. So every year, you know, he gets a bigger and bigger role. You know, might he be a dominant guy at this tournament for a really good Russian team? You've got, um, you know, the goalie Askarov, who uh, 
winning the first round of the draft and, and how exciting, you know, how dominant might he be um, in a situation like that? Um, you know, when you get high profile guys from this recent draft, so the, the two Swedes, uh, um, uh, Raymond and Holt, um, what are they going to do for Sweden? You mentioned Byfield. You know, there's a kid that we saw him last year at the World Juniors, and he, he progressively dropped down the depth chart to the point where he was really almost an afterthought, um, playing on the fourth line. And and but you know, and again, that that's not criticism. That's just an observation. And he could be the best player at the World Juniors this year. It's a fantastic talent. And we saw we saw a very similar thing happen two years ago when Alexi Lafreniere right. was, was at the world juniors in was in Vancouver. Um, you know, and he, he oftentimes was a fourth line guy and he lost his role on the team and slid right down. And then he comes back a year later and he's the dominant player for the team that wins the gold and, and dodges a huge bullet with the injury that we thought might take him out of the tournament. So, you know, it's, um, all up and down. The thing you love about the World Juniors is you can pick any team in there and there's somebody you can hang your hat on. And uh, so is Marco Rossi going to be there for Austria? If so, I want to see him against those other teams. Is, is Stutzel's hand going to be healed and ready to go for Germany? Uh, um, I'll be curious to, on, on that. And then all the Canadians and Americans. And uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's what I love about the tournament. So, Bob, tell us about your new book. It's with Jim Lang. You guys have collaborated uh, in the past. It's called Everyday Hockey Heroes. Uh, take the floor here and, and pitch your book. Well, yeah, it's Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2. And, um, and I guess I would say the, the introduction I wrote about hockey culture. And you've, I know you've written and talked about it a lot, as have I. And hockey culture right now, when you say it, right away people kind of recoil a little bit because there's a negative connotation to it. And understandably so. Um, based on a lot of things that have, that have happened in the game. And I, and I think that's fair. And I don't think we in hockey and who are, who, those of us who are part of hockey culture, I guess, the mainstream media, um, I, I've lived my whole life in hockey, so I guess I'm part of the hockey culture. But for me, I, you know, hockey culture for me is no different than culture. Um, there's, there's good elements to our society. There's bad elements to our society. There's horrendous elements to our society. Um, and, and so I understand why some people, when they hear hockey culture, it's easy for me as a elderly white man, um, who's been involved in the game his whole life, um, and being part of the quote unquote, so-called mainstream media and establishment, if you will. Um, it's easy for me to say that don't recoil at hockey culture, but you know, if you're a person of color or you're in the LGBTQ community, um, or in the indigenous community, um, or, you know, um, with any sort of um, disability, um, you know, you might say, no, I, hockey's not for everybody. And it's been, it's, I love hockey, but it's been really, really difficult for me. And, and this book is filled with stories of people who have had to overcome that in some way. And, and I like to think they're mostly happy endings, but I think whether they are happy or unhappy, they're instructive along the way that, that, you know, what did specific individuals do when they didn't feel as though when they were being excluded from, from hockey culture, so to speak. So you've got a, a 
closeted gay man in, named Joey Gale uh, at the time, a, a teenager playing playing Minnesota in, in hockey in Minnesota, and and he felt himself being pushed out of the game because nobody knew that he was gay. He didn't want to tell anybody that he was gay, and there was a lot of homophobic slurs and language used that made him feel really really uncomfortable. So he kind of pushed himself away from hockey. And, and then he, when he went to university, he, he came out to his family, to his friends. And once he was out, he decided, geez, I really love hockey. I'd like to go back again and started playing again. But this time made no secret of the fact who he was and what he was all about. So he would use pride tape on a stick to, to, to tell people that. And he showed up the first time very nervous in in this game that he was going to and somebody said hey what's with the gay tape and he said well i'm gay and he was warmly and fully embraced by the players that he was playing with and it wasn't an issue at all like it was before and he felt warm a warm welcome from those people and so that was an encouraging element where he was pushed away from the game which is not good um but he found his way back to it and and was able to to stay in, in it. And I think those were instructive and there's all sorts of stories like that. And, and we even, what we did as a corollary to that story was um, uh, Jim Lang talked to the guys that came up with the idea for pride tape. Um, two straight white dudes, one from Halifax who lives now in, in Edmonton and, uh, um, and, and one from Edmonton who now lives in Vancouver. And they tell an amazing story um, about how they came up with the idea for Pride Tape and how Billy Ranford and Andrew Ferentz, um really were integral in, in helping this thing get off the ground. And, and I learned a lot. Like that, that story on Pride Tape was, was terrific, especially when you combine it with the context of Joey Gale using that as his announcement. I'm coming back to men's league hockey and I'm and I've got my yeah. pride tape, yeah. and somebody making a remark about it, and him saying, "Yeah," and you're like, "Okay, cool, man, that's awesome." So I, I think that's an inspiring story. Um, you know, we've got Jessica Platt tells an unbelievable story of her life as a transgender athlete who, as as a kid growing up, never felt comfortable in in loves hockey, just was absolutely crazy about hockey, but never felt comfortable. Um, and it kind of pushed away from the, the sport, but she went through the transgender experience. And I mean, I'm obviously well-educated enough to know what transgender is and, and, and that, but honestly, I never really fully appreciated and understood uh, the, the extent of it and, and how illuminating and enlightening her story was until I read it. And I started thinking, you know, that, that could be anybody's child boy, girl, whatever, um, if that's your child and you see the pain that they're in and the torture that they went through to, to make that journey, the transgender journey, um, and then to see how happy they are when they've made it and then they come back and they're fully embraced, as Jessica Platt was playing in the, in the Women's League in Canada, um, that's, that's an inspiring story. And it also is an instructive story for people who maybe don't know a lot about that. And as I say, I, I, I knew of transgender, but 
not enough detail. And then when I read that, it, it, it takes it to another emotional level. So I found that story to be unbelievably riveting. How did you and Jim decide on these topics and these people and these chapters? Like, did you have a list and you, you trim it down and you approach certain people? Maybe some say yes, some say no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, it's a real collaborative effort. There's, there's three people that are, are um, sort of in on the ground floor on that. And, and the first one we should mention is Sarah St. Pierre, and she's an editor at Simon & Schuster. And I, I like to view her as the, um, aside from being like really a good editor, like she's a kick-ass copy editor and you can't slide anything by her without, what, why, why'd you say it this way? What'd you do? <laughs> she, she, keeps, she, she keeps me and Jim really honest and she really polishes up her copy and makes it much better than it otherwise would be. But quite aside from the editorial function, she really understands sort of the soul of everyday hockey heroes. And so she's always on the lookout and, and it was her who told us about the story of Joey Gale. Mm. And, and I believe it was Sarah who, who talked to Jessica Platt about penning her own story. Je- Jessica wrote her own story. Um, and it's phenomenal. And, and so we, we had a meeting um, once we knew, once we did everyday hockey heroes volume one and the paperback edition was a couple of years ago or whatever, we had our first meeting and, you know, I would come with ideas. Jim would come with ideas. Like Jim came in and immediately said, I really think we should do something on women who coach. There's going to be an NHL. There's going to be a, a woman who stands behind the bench of an NHL game sometime. Um, and if they do, they're going to owe a debt of gratitude to Daniel Sovajo, who of course was the coach of Canada's national women's team, but also coached men's hockey in the, uh, in the Quebec major junior hockey league and, and what have you. And so he was thinking, Jim was that, this would be a great story. And it was. Um, and so I would come with, you know, my list. So I'm like, you know, Jack Jablonski, the Minnesota high school player who was paralyzed and is such an impressive kid. Boy, oh boy, to have the traumatic injury that paralyzed him. And then to do as much as he's done with his life in such a short period of time, graduating from the university of Southern California. And I was getting involved in hockey media. I was on his podcast uh, a couple of months ago and just a terrific kid. And, and you know, and, and this is where we talk about hockey culture too. You know, as I said, there's a negative connotation to it. There's a positive connotation to it. But I mean, when Jack Jablonski got injured, you know, that was hockey culture that propped him up and supported him and, right. and he inspired us in, in the hockey culture. So it can be a really positive thing too, where, where the entire hockey community rallies around somebody and, and, and helps them, tries to help them get through it. And then in, in helping them, they help us realize how inspiring and how brave and courageous um, the way he's conducted himself since his injury. So, yeah, so we basically go through and we come up with story ideas. And, and Jim does the lion's share of the work. He interviews most of the subject matters. He writes it. Sarah edits it. Um, we, we're constant communication, talking about the stories and, and what we could do. But, you know, there's, I think there's, 15, 16, 17 stories in the, in the book. And I, I, I think, you know, six to eight of them were probably names that I came armed with and said, I really think it would be great to do something on this guy or this girl or that guy. And, and that's kind of the way we did it. Yeah, there seems to be a strong theme of diversity. And I guess it connects back to, to your opening there about hockey culture. Have you even just seen tremendous growth in that area 
women coming up, uh, people from the LGBT community being able to to come out uh, over the last ten years. Like it, you've you've been around to see sort of the the trends here. Well, I think there's been a huge awakening on every front. I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement, racial injustice, everything that's happened, um, everything that's happened in hockey from Billy Peters to Don Cherry to to whatever. So there's there's been an awakening. There's been um, a recognition on the part of a lot of people that whatever it is we've been doing, we need to do more. Um, and and then there's the predictable backlash too from some people who don't want to hear about that. that you know, so but that's human nature. There's not a not everybody's going to jump on on board the train, and and it's you know try to win people over one at a time and make your own corner of the world a a better place. But I don't think there's there's any question about that. And I know myself over time. You know, for the longest time, you're so busy, so wrapped up in what you do. Right. Quote, unquote, yeah. Hockey insider. It's 24-7. Yeah. We're trying to break trades. We're trying to break signings. I'm not thinking about diversity. I'm not thinking about, um, you know, exclusivity, inclusivity, or any of that stuff. I'm just doing my job and grinding away. And then you kind of, you know, as I talked about earlier, where you, sometimes you kind of kind of get outside yourself. It's not about you. It's not about, you know, don't be so selfish. Don't be so self-centered try to have a more global view of what's going on in the world and be aware of some of these things. And then once that awareness is there, well, you know, you're going to be a spectator on it or are you going to speak up or are you going to do anything tangible to try and make things better? And, and so in some small way, I think myself and Sarah and Jim feel like this is, this is one of the tangible things we're trying to do because I think the, the, the stories in the book are probably designed to have two impacts. One, I think you want to create role models for, so whether it's young girls or young boys or people in the LGBT community or people of color, um, um, black people, um, um, you know, indigenous, whatever the case may be, whatever pigeonholes you want to put somebody in. Yeah. It's really, really important. And I think we all know this now that, you know, like when Kendall Coyne Schofield is the fastest skater and one of the fastest skaters in the world at the NHL skills competition, it inspired so many little girls to want to skate and be like Kendall. And, and, and so you need stories, you need role models. And there's a whole bunch of them in this book for various members of different communities. And, And so that's number one. Number two is I think you want to try to appeal to, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll say people like me or people like I used to be. That is somebody who really didn't give much thought to all of this stuff, but then reads a story and maybe they read Joey Gale's story and they're like, wow, imagine if that was my son. Imagine the hurt and the pain and the anguish that he felt. And now, you know, so I, I'd like to think that the stories help improve the level of empathy somebody might have and um, whether it does or not I don't know but I'd like to think so and uh, and and I think that can be a real positive too. So Bob we're running out of time here but I wanted to ask you one last question that kind of brings it all full circle our conversation here in terms of books and yourself have you thought about doing a memoir a biography of some kind? I've had opportunities and um, my book agent, Brian Wood, has been bugging me to do it. And, uh, and I'm not sure I want to. 
Um, and I, I wouldn't say never, but if I was smart, I'd say do it fast before people forget who the hell you are. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I, I didn't do it. Here's, here's one tip for, for young people in the business. Keep a journal, take notes, keep a lot of paperwork. Um, Cause I, I don't know that I could do justice to a lot of the stuff that I want to talk about because you're trying to do it from memory and yeah. 10, 15, 20 years later, your memory plays some weird tricks on you. And, and, and I sometimes think if I, if I kept a journal when I was younger and I kept notes um, and held on to some of the paperwork and some of the things that you did or things that happened, you, I might be more inclined to say, you know what? Yeah, I, I would like to do that. And now I'm not even sure where I'd begin, but um, uh, I'm, I'm really happy doing this book project. And hopefully there's going to be an Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 3 as well. And I've already started thinking the different things I see and different people I see. I'm like, oh, you're going in the next book. <laughs> nice. You don't know it yet, but you're going in the next book <laughs> if there is one. And uh, and so we'll see. But uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing that if I had to lay money on it, I doubt I'm, there's going to be a memoir. I don't know that anything I did was that remarkable. You're selling yourself short there, but thanks for, for coming on. Appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, on the way out, feel free to uh, let people know where they can pick up uh, you and Jim's book. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, you can go to uh, right now, if you want to jump on the, uh, the Indigo website in Canada, they got a great deal, 10 bucks off the, the list price. So you can get the book for 25 bucks and have it in plenty of time for Christmas. You can go to Simon & Schuster's Canadian website, .ca, or Simon & Schuster's US website, .com. And if you want to go to either one of the Simon & Schuster, .ca, or .com, um, there's an excerpt there, the entire chapter one of the book that I wrote, which is about uh, a couple of guys named Terry Mercury and Lindbergh Gonzalez. And uh, two guys the exact same age as me, who I played minor hockey against in a very quite white Scarborough back in the day. And as you know, John, Scarborough has become one of the most racially diverse communities in all of Canada. It has put, to my count, 10 Scarberians in the National Hockey League. And number 11 will probably be Akil Thomas, yep. who scored the game-winning goal at the World Juniors. And um, anyways, I, I, I'm really proud of that story. and really proud of Terry Mercury and Lindbergh Gonzalez for going back and, and, and comparing and contrasting what it was like for me as a white kid growing up in quite white Scarborough in the sixties and seventies playing minor hockey versus their experience. And, uh, it's, it's, as you would expect, illuminating and as stark as the difference in black and white. Right on. Well, thanks for doing this, Bob. Much appreciated. Okay. Thanks, John. Really appreciate it. And appreciate all the work you do. Puck Pursuit is produced by Nick Roy.